You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Wow, I wasted all this money trying to be an insurance agent of a client of one, and therefore I spent hours of my life for nothing, to earn money, to have numbers on a screen, and I watched my life pass me by. That cabin where I could have had all those dinners and, and family experiences and the life I wanted to have, I let that go by so I can be an insurance agent for myself. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. You work too hard for your money to let it sit on the sidelines. Fidelity can show you how to demand more from your money every day. Visit fidelity.com slash hermoney to learn more. Hey everyone, it's Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining us today on Her Money. So if you're a regular listener to this show, you know how it goes. We do the interview, then we do the mailbag, then we do the thrive. And today we are shaking it up because I got a letter from a listener, Laura in Sacramento, that was so on point for the discussion that we're gonna be having today that I wanted our guests to hear it. And so I'm gonna read it first. And here's what Laura said. Hi, Jean, I am a huge fan of yours. Thanks for all you do to help women understand and manage our money. I'm gonna share lots of details about my situation. I hope it gives you the information you need to help me and your listeners. Here are some facts. First, I'm almost 50, living in California, married with two sons in college. Both are debt-free and we hope to keep it that way. I have $500,000 saved in my 401k mix of pre-tax and Roth. I max out my contributions and the company match every year. My husband has about $200,000 in rollover IRAs. We have a joint brokerage account with about $25,000 and a health savings account of about $20,000. We have 16,000 now in emergency savings and we'll have 20,000 more in April when I vest in stock grants. We're also saving $1,500 a month in cash. My husband works as a principal in the public school system. Tell him thank you for that, by the way. And he's fortunate enough to have a pension. We estimate that when he retires in 10 years, he'll have 30 years of service with a salary factor of about $135,000, which should yield a monthly pension of about $7,000. I plan to take Social Security at age 67, which will be around $3,000 a month, and my husband's will be around $1,000 a month. Our home is worth $850,000, and we owe $375,000. We have 16 years to pay it off at an interest rate of 3.375. We also owe $18,000 on a car at a super low rate and have no credit card debt. I earn $150,000 a year and my husband earns $138,000. Here is my question. It feels like all we do is work and save and we don't take time to stop and smell the roses. We would love to be able to buy a small vacation home about an hour away from us, a place to spend weekends and holidays and fish and hike and just relax. It feels like 300,000 would get us what we're looking for. To buy that place, I'd like to refi our home and pull out $45,000, which would give us money to update our home as well as for a down payment. We'd refi with a 30-year fixed. Although we may not pay off the home when we retire, our retirement income should allow us to make the minimum payment until we're ready to convert to a long-term rental and then give ours to our sons. 
does it make sense to think of our primary residence as a long-term investment or rental property? I love the idea of creating passive income. Also, do you think we're on track for retirement or do we need to keep saving even more? I know the advice is to be conservative and save, 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 but I don't want to miss out on precious family time. Life is short and there is no guarantee that tomorrow will come. Thank you so much for your advice. And Laura, I'm going to be bringing you not just my advice, because I do have thoughts on this, as you might expect, but the advice of Bill Perkins, who is the author of Die With Zero, Getting All You Can From Your Money and Your Life. Bill is a really interesting guy. Not only is he the author of this new book, he's also the CEO of Brissamax Holdings, a Wall Street trained energy trader and a movie investor. He's also a professional poker player. In his book, he makes the contrarian case that we should all be spending more of our time exploring the world, savoring our relationships and pursuing our dreams because it really is true. You can't take it with you. Hey, Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. What what a great question and segue. I, I want to congratulate her on her awareness because part of that letter was saying, hey, I've kind of been on autopilot and diligent about my savings, uh, obviously being frugal and not living above their means by having those type of assets. but understanding what am I delaying gratification for, right? My right. What am I delaying life for? Exactly. And my book is, is about net fulfillment over net worth, right? And her and her husband are building net worth and these retirement plans, et cetera. But she realizes, what I think she's realizing is, is that she's delaying certain experiences past the point of which she can have them, of which she will never get them back. And so... She's starting to ask the question, which is the first thing we need to do is get off autopilot and ask the question, why are we delayed in gratification? What are the experiences we want out of our life? We're not saving just to make a big number, right? Like who cares what the number is? We're saving in order to have an experience, right? Yeah. Well, I want to come back to that big number for a second, because I, I do think there is something in the number and there is, we've all been, and I'm probably guilty of both walking this line, but also preaching this message that you have to save and you have to save because you're so much more responsible for your financial life than any generation that ever came before us. But I do think in Laura's case and in the case of a lot of people, yeah, we get so wrapped up in that, that we forget to live. I mean, Laura, buy the house, please buy the house. And, you know, you can save money on the mortgage at this point, you can refi into a 15, you can, you have so many choices, but please go fish and hunt and hike and do the other things. I don't know if hunt was on your list, but <laughs> do all of those things that you wanted to do. Yeah. So we, we save for survival, right? The saving you're talking about, say, taking part of your financial future is the first thing we all want to do is have shelter, a home, food on the table, and some money for maintenance of our bodies and, and, and the things that we have and enjoy. But after that, it's for every experience, whether it be a charitable experience to go hiking, go biking, dinners with friends, help people over, whatever it is. I can't list the trillions of experiences that people may or may not want to have. But these experiences, 
it's not like the movie The Bucket List where like you're going to die in a month and you get to go tick them off all one by one. Each experience that you have in your life has a season at which it is meant to have, the optimal season, right? When you have small kids, okay, the Disney World and the merry-go-round days are, are well-defined, right? That's an easy example. When you're in college, there's certain experiences you'll do in college and things that are fun to you while you're in college and not so fun. When you're a young adult, before you have kids, all these seasons come and go. And the experiences that you want to have are not meant to be delayed to another time bucket in your life. And so if you miss them at that time, you never get them. You miss the fulfillment of those experiences. And that happens all throughout your life. How do you then balance? I mean, we know there are a lot of people out there who are struggling right now because of COVID, not because of COVID. I mean, even going into the pandemic, there were really, really frightening statistics about big chunks of our population who are having trouble saving anything. Plus the fact that when it does come to this retirement that, I mean, this family was incredibly lucky. They have pensions. Only 17% of the people in the country have pensions anymore. That is not something that most people can depend on. So how do you walk the line, both emotionally and financially, with now versus later? Well, this is not a spend, spend, spend book. This is a model, model, model book. This is about taking your life from now and modeling it from now to the grave, right? And identifying, getting off autopilot, like saving is good. And when we get good at things, we make them a habit. And when they become habits, they're on autopilot. So you're just saving for no reason. You're, you're detached from the experiences and why you're originally saving. You just start saving. It's like being a hamster in a wheel, taking away the cheese. They still, they still run, right? Mm -hmm. And we humans will still save. And so, when you model your life and you're in a situation where it's like, oh, wait a minute, I'm undersaved for survival, right? I don't, ha I don't have the pension. Then you do the things you need to do in order to boost your savings, increase your revenue, reduce your spending, whatever it is the experts out there in that vertical will tell you to do to get you back on model, right? But when you're in this person's case, who is clearly an oversaver, right? Yeah. She is delaying gratification past the grave meaning that she is going to have resources and capital and money that she will never spend, right? If she keeps on this path and money not spent are dreams not fulfilled. It's a life unfulfilled. It is you spending hours of your life toiling away, going to work for zero gratification. I wanna push back on that just a little bit because I do think there is a lot of thinking going on, especially right now with all of the adult children moving home about helping our kids, about what we owe the next generation. And although it, it, there was a lot in her letter that I sort of skipped over, but she's conscious of that. I'm conscious of that, of not dying with nothing so that I do leave something to my kids. Where do you put that in your equation? And, I, and my charities, by the way. That's a great question, a great concern, and we all have it. And it's the number one question I get, or, or pushback I get is what a version of what about the kids? You know, and another version of that is what about the charities or health? And basically, if we live forever, 
and did not deteriorate, there would be no reason for my book, okay? Everyone, not only do we die, we deteriorate. And so our ability to convert our resources into experiences, the things we wanna do, right, declines with age. That's true for our children as well, okay? So, you know, I tell my friends, picking a random date, a semi-random date in the future, when you're gonna die, to random people, because you don't know what kids are going to be around, and a random amount, right? Because you don't know how much is left over because you're not modeling, you're not planning. It's just, oh, whatever I don't use, kind of air, you know, put my finger up in the air. It's not a plan. And especially it's not a plan if your assets are at risk from lawsuit or disaster, et cetera, and that money goes away, well, then so goes your kids, right? So just as there's an optimal time and place for you to be spending your money, right? the balance, it is for your kids. And so what I tell people is, we're not giving our kids money at 60, right? We're 86, they're 60. That, that's not the optimal time to transfer asset to your kids. It's gonna be when they're mentally mature and physically mature, but not in decline. And I generally say that age is between 28 to 33. You might shift it like, oh no, they're, they're not mentally mature, we gotta push a little bit further. But at a certain point, that is going to be the maximum utility of money for your children. Yeah, I will, let's dig into that a little bit more because that's a really, really interesting notion and I can see it in things that I've read and also written lately, Gathering Steam. This idea that we give, we should be giving our kids, if we're giving them the money for a start in life, it, it's better to do it while they are young adults and responsible enough to handle it than it is to do when they're 60 and close to retirement themselves because we're 85. Well, just think about it. Like when I was uh, just say 10 years ago, when I went to Paris, I'd walk 12 miles a day. I'd see the cafes. I go all around. I do everything. When I go to Paris now, I'm lucky for six or seven before it's not enjoyable anymore. Paris does not have the same value. To me, and that's happened to everybody. When I went to St. Petersburg, um, they let you climb the steps of the church, 211 steps and you walk around and you could do a lot of things in these Eastern European countries. Not one tour bus had one person over 60 climb those steps, not one person. It was a different St. Petersburg. So if you're trying to give them life, right? Because that's what the money is, it's life energy. It's hours of your life converted and represented in these pieces of paper or yen or whatever you wanna call it. If you're trying to give them the maximum, right? You want to do it at the right age. You want to do it at the right age. And also, if you don't quantify it, okay, everybody starts living suboptimally, right? You're giving it to them at a later age in life when opportunities and experiences that they no longer have the temperament, ability, or like it anymore becomes difficulties up. They can't do them. You're, you're, you're actually giving them less a gift as you give it to them later. And on top of that, by not separating it out and knowing that number, you're kind of, you know, in this fuzzy world of, I got to leave them something, I don't know what it is, et cetera, and you can't model your life, right? So now, you're, now you have multiple lives that are not being modeled and then thus suboptimal and wasteful. I want to figure out a little bit about how you became you, because I wouldn't think that an energy trader would end up with these views on life. And I'm sure that there was some experience or other that just turned on the light bulb for you. But before we do that, let me just remind everybody that Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. 
It's no secret that women are on a different financial journey than men. So it's important to plan for those differences when thinking about retirement, social security, investing, and more. Fidelity can help. They're taking steps to help women demand more from their money, our money, because we have all worked way too hard to get where we are to keep our money sitting on the sidelines. Get the skills and investment advice that you need to put it to work for you and you can visit fidelity.com slash her money to learn more. We're back with Bill Perkins. He is the author of the new book, Die with Zero. Okay, Bill, what happened in your life that made you wake up? Oh, it, it's kind of like those movies where like um, small pieces of, of, of information or experiences I had all pointed in the same direction to, to the same philosophy. And, um, you know, some of it was books. There's a book called Your Money or Your Life. Uh-huh. Vicki Robin, um, we've had her on the show. It's foundational to my thinking because it got me thinking about money as a definition of something I exchange hours of my life for. And I went through the exercises. They're very painful to go through, but to quantify what an hour of your life is worth. And so, and then it, through those exercises, you don't think of things like a shirt costs $12. You think of a shirt costs me you know, an hour of work or whatever it is, 30 minutes of work, et cetera. And so I thought I started to think about what do I want to do with this life energy that I have? What experiences and things do I want to exchange hours of my life for? Um, um, I was working on the exchange floor, saving money. I was as frugal as possible um, on a very, very low salary. And my boss told me, uh, you know, I, I was proud. I thought I was going to get a gold star for saving a thousand dollars on like $16,000 a year plus some extra money I worked driving a limo at night to make ends meet. And he, he you know, excuse my French, he said, you're a fucking idiot. What are you doing? You, you didn't come here to make $16,000 a year. You came here to make millions. Your salary is going to grow. Take that money and go spend it. And I was like, it hit me. I was like, he's right. Like, why am I depriving my future richer self? And I was certain I'd be richer because I could have just quit and wait, waited tables and made more money, right? <laughs> and I did sign up for this job to make a lot more money. So like, why am I depriving my future richer self? You know, I mean, my poor self, driving my poor self in order to give to my richer self, right? I should be having these experiences that are meant for 20 year olds. That's interesting, right? Instead, yeah. And, and, so, and so that kind of sunk in and there were just small experiences along the way of me asking the question, you know, as an arrogant young person, right? I've seen people 50 in New York City. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting a rich person in New York City, right? And, and, and I think, yeah, but they're old. Who cares? You know what I mean? Like, what are they going to do with the money? Like, it's too late for them, right? And, 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 and that was ages. And I, I was completely off because that's my age now. But, uh, but what I did get right was the direction, what? right? At some point, it's too late. Can we talk about how risk plays into this? I mean, I'm, yes. I'm talking to you for, for everybody who can't see Bill as I can see him. He is in a hotel room in Vegas because he's there for the World Series of Poker. Um, uh, you are- World a, Poker Tour. For the yeah. World Poker Tour. Because he is there yes. for the World Poker Tour. And, and you're, you're a championship poker player. I mean, you play professionally. Well, Women, I would call myself an amateur, a good amateur. Okay. How about that? You're a very, <laughs> very good poker player. I, like many women, have trouble with risk. And although 
what you're sounding, what, although what you're saying makes complete and total sense to me, it also sounds like taking a lot of risks with my future. And I don't know how to incrementally, as a woman, nudge myself there. I know myself and I know our listeners, and I don't think we can do it 100% by jumping in. But I do think that you make a lot of incredible points. So how do you nudge people there? Well, the, the, there's just two things. I think, you know, when something's scary, I, I like to quantify it, right? And so if, if, you know, one of the things to do is to quantify what exactly are you afraid of? What, do, what are you worried about? Okay. And, and part of that is in the exercise I put in, I put in a kind of like a time bucketing because you just don't have a bucket list. Like I said, experiences are meant for a certain time. So let's break up our lives in three to five year increments and to the grave, okay, to our estimated death date and start writing out and putting down the experiences we want to have. And, and you're not going to do it in one day. There's, it's impossible because we've been on autopilot, earning, 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 saving, saving, saving. We've be, become detached from the reason we become, we're earning. But over time, a month, you know, just any frequency that you can, you can sit down and say, okay, 50 to 55, 55 to 60, 65, you know, and so on, right? And start putting the type of activities you want to do. You'll start to understand what your spend pattern is, what you really are going to spend on. And then also, I, I, I try and tell people, you need to fear wasting your life more than you fear going broke. You know, we need to, or at least we need to, we need to, we need to dose that in. You know, I'm about, all about net fulfillment over net worth. I don't care if you're busted. If you're having, I see people who are busted who are having the most adventurous, fulfilling life ever relative to, to me. Okay. And I'm like, oh, wow, I'm doing it wrong. I need to get off autopilot. But that may look different for every other person. But we need to think about our lifetime fulfillment, fear wasting your life, you know, shift that over. And then the other thing is, is once we've identified those fears, let's work to mitigate them. Right. And I think what oversavers do and those who save tend to oversave is try to mitigate every single risk in the book by being their own insurance agent. Like if I just have enough money, I can, in, I can insure myself for, from this bad thing and that bad thing and this bad thing. And what's, what happens by being your own insurance agent, you're woefully inefficient and you still won't have the capital base, right? Um, and, so, and so it's like, wow, I wasted all this money trying to be in, an insurance agent of a client of one. And therefore I spent hours of my life for nothing earn money to have numbers on a screen and I watch my life pass me by that cabin where I could have had all those dinners and and family experiences and the life I wanted to have I let that go by so I can be an insurance agent for myself and I'm not saying we shouldn't mitigate risk I'm saying let's go to the professionals to mitigate that risk you know okay so let's bring it back to Laura as we wrap this up I think she should buy that second house how about you Oh, definitely. I think the refi, I, she quoted some technical things, right? Which is not my book. My book is an optimization of your whole life. But there are some refi things she should be doing in there to take that money back out. Why be paying it to, to a bank and interest rates are at, I mean, all time historic lows. I think she should be thinking about on the return on experience, memory dividends. You don't retire on money, you retire on your memories. Okay. 
when you're older and you're 70, you don't want to go anywhere and people are like, let's go. And you're like, I don't have the disposition, the energy, et cetera. I just want you to bring over the grandkids and talk about all the old times. That's what you retire on. So if you want to have a healthy, full retirement, you need to get the hell out there and create the experiences that you want to have. And so I am 100% in favor with these pensions that they have, which is a form of an annuity mm -hmm. that is an insurance product. They are well situated to take these steps to make these moves. I think you you're know? I think you're absolutely right. Although I think the age at which that happens, where you start banking on your memories and and not wanting to go places, and I say this because my mother just turned eighty. I think it's much closer to eighty than it is to seventy. Um, seventy people are going great guns. I mean, you know, I I love to believe that, but that. In my family, that's not true. And I think it's really based on your biological age, not your, your actual age, right? So that's there. But when I look at the census data and I look at net worth per household, it just keeps going up. And what that tells me, if your net worth is going up in your 70s, it's either you forgot how to party or there never will be a party, right? I, I tell people's wealth keeps going up. I'm like, when's the party? Just just tell me what date, you know? <laughs> and, and, the, and the data shows, the data shows it doesn't happen. Yeah. And the private wealth clients, their biggest problem is getting their clients to accumulate. Yeah. No, you're you're totally right. This has been such an interesting conversation. The book is Die with Zero. Bill, is there a website where we can find more about you? Um, you could go to diewithzerobook.com to find out about me. You can find me in the Twitter streets at BP22 is on Twitter. I'll I'll, I'll answer any question. I, I'm an addict to Twitter, just like many people. I, I love to battle on Twitter. But, um, you know, on the book, there's some tools on uh, what I talked about time bucketing, like identifying the experiences and put them in. There's some tools to help you there. We're going to create new versions of that so that people can have an exercise to actually model their life. And there's also a, a spend model. So like what you should be spending based on how much you need for retirement, your survival number and a track to spend down optimally. It's just a guideline to make sure you don't die with a million dollars and, and wasted opportunity. Die with zero regrets. Love it. I love it. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we'll be right back with Catherine and the rest of your mailbag. Catherine is back with the rest of your mailbag. Thank you for allowing me to hijack the first question for the top of the show. I just thought that it really belonged there. Oh, my gosh. Yes. No, totally. I mean, that's that's why I, I put it in the script because I felt like it really spoke to exactly what Bill is talking about. Obviously, we know that there are millions of American families who simply can't save enough and who have lost jobs who are struggling right now. But there is a percentage of people out there, and I would honestly put my parents into this category of people who have worked and saved their whole lives who could enjoy their money more. Mm -hmm. And you've worked too hard for your money to not reap the benefits. And, and I let, totally agree. And let go of, of some of that stress that you feel of, of not having enough. At a certain point, you have to say, you know what, I've done a great job and we're going to have some fun. Yeah, absolutely. And that may mean as we talked about defining what is enough, you know, defining the concept of enough and um, allowing yourself to be okay with that. There are also, I think right now with so many adult kids moving back home with their parents, 
is this big question of what we owe the next generation. And, you know, if we feel like many of us do, that they are going to end up paying the price for a lot of what we're going through now, how do we make sure that we provide the younger people that we love with as much as we can without hurting ourselves? That's such a great point. I think that COVID has put multiple generations under the same roof. And mm-hmm. that has opened up a lot of dialogue around what are we doing to help one another now? What will we be doing when we pass? How how are our finances set up? You know, I, I like to think that maybe some conversations that might not have happened otherwise are happening now because of more family time spent together. I hope so, too. Yeah. So what do we have? Well, our next question is from an anonymous listener. She writes... Hi, Jean and Catherine and the Hermony team. I would like to first thank you for your podcast. I've been listening retrospectively for the past few months, and I can't thank you enough for the confidence you've instilled in many of my financial decisions and planning. I'm 37 years old, and I'm a saver with a capital S. Up until recently, I've been absolutely terrified of the market and learning all that I know now. I'm kicking myself for not starting sooner, but better late than never. Here's my landscape. I have a Roth 401k with a 5% employer match and a traditional IRA that I can max out and have since 2019. I have $72,000 in an emergency savings account, which is probably more than I need, but I live in LA and I have expensive rent. I have $50,000 in an investment account with an advisor, and he's trickling that into the market now. I have another $128,000 in a CD, which I plan to invest more of with a little more confidence. I also tried to open an HSA, but my deductible was too low to qualify, and it's something that I'll re-examine during re-enrollment in November. So here's my question. How else can I diversify? The housing market in LA is outrageous, and it terrifies me to sink all of my savings into a down payment, and what's more, be nervous for the mortgage payment, which I can hardly afford. One-bedroom condos start at $1 million in a neighborhood that's safe enough for a single woman. So that's on pause until my life circumstances change. Is an investment property in another state a possible solution or maybe more of a headache? Also, my advisor has suggested a whole life insurance plan, which I have read, can be used as another source of retirement funding. I'd be guaranteed 4% interest, but the premium is high at $1,000 a month, and it seems like more of a burden for the long haul than a safe option for a risk-averse person like myself. Am I missing something? Thank you so much for all that you do. Your work has the potential to impact female and male generations to come. I am already talking to my five-year-old niece about the importance of financial education, words that were never uttered to me. Oh, well, thank you so much for writing. And let me just say, you're doing great. I'm so glad that you found your way to this podcast. I hope that it has inspired you to read more and learn more. I'm focusing in on that 128000 in the CD. I'd like to see you roll that out of the CD and into more of a long-term investment, unless you decide that you're going to use some or part of it as a down payment on some sort of a property, which would be fine. It seems like buying property, sort of reading between the lines of your letter, is what you want to do right now. And I get not wanting to buy in LA. I get not wanting to plunk that money into a condo that you think is outrageously priced. And so I wonder if you look at investment property, 
in another state, if you look at investment property in a less expensive part of California, is that something that you could see using? Is it something, if you bought a second home before you bought a first home, is it someplace that you think that you would spend time? Is it something that you think you would enjoy? Or if you buy it as an investment, how does the thought of being a landlord sit with you? We have a show, and you'll want to look at that, with Julie Lamb and Annie Dickerson. They invest in real estate through a syndicate. So it's a group way to invest in real estate. So although there are fees, you don't have to deal with the issues of the toilet breaking in the middle of the night. So listen to that if you haven't already. I'm not so big on the whole life insurance plan for you. You're a single woman. You don't need life insurance. And so you are just better off trying to maximize your ability to put money in tax-deferred investments like your IRAs. And then if not, invest in a diversified portfolio outside of your tax-advantaged accounts. You can do this with more and more money, and it will still provide the diversification that you need. When you're putting money into funds that have thousands and thousands of stocks, you don't really have to look outside for additional diversification. You have to make sure that you've got enough money for the short term, the medium term, and the long term, depending on your goals. But searching for different investments investments that are non-market investments, unless that's something that you are really looking to do, is not something that is a must, at least not on my list. So congrats on all of this and let us know what happens. Yeah, please do. We would love to know how it shakes out. I definitely feel for her in an expensive city living in New York. It's, oh, it's so disheartening. Yeah, although I'm looking at New York right now and it is disheartening, but I wonder, and I don't know the LA real estate market, I wonder if COVID has done to some sections of LA what it has done to real estate in New York, which is open up values. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, definitely so many of my friends have left the city for the suburbs. There's some really good deals to be had right now. If it's been a little while since you've looked, you may want to look again. Thanks so much, Jean. Our last question is from Margo. She writes, Hi, Jean and Catherine. I have a bit of a complicated question, but I figured I would ask because there may be other women in my position with the same question. I'm married, and my partner and I both file as married filing separate because he's making payments for public service loan forgiveness, and this way his sole income is taken into account for the monthly payment amount. One accountant I spoke with said that this wasn't allowed because my partner and I live together, and another accountant I spoke to actually advised doing this strategy in the first place and said it's fine. I'm confused and don't want to make a mistake on my tax filings for this year. Please advise. Thank you so much. So I was with the second accountant. I thought, this is fine. I've heard of people doing this in the past, and the real question that you need to ask yourself is, whether you're saving more money on the forgiveness of the loan long-term than you would be saving married filing jointly, because we all know there is a penalty for married filing separately when you look at the additional taxes that you pay. But because I wasn't 120% certain, and we had two accountants here, 
I actually quickly shot your question off to Mark Kantrowitz, and Mark is with the website savingforcollege.com. He is and has been my go-to on any question related to financial aid for so many years, I can't tell you, and he confirms. And here's what he wrote. The monthly payment under certain income-driven repayment plans is based on just the borrower's income if a married borrower files a separate return. This is true for ICR, that's income contingent repayment, IBR, income-based repayment, and PAYE, which is pay as you earn, but not repay, which is the revised pay as you earn. And he points out that he's got a comparison chart up on saving for college. The accountant who claims that she can't file as married filing separately because she and her partner live together is wrong. A couple cannot file a joint return unless parties agree to a joint return. There is absolutely no prohibition on filing separate returns if the couple lives together. Filing a separate return causes the loss of certain tax benefits, one of which applies if the couple live together during the year. So you want to take a look at that because that is going to add into the point that I made about paying more taxes. But he suggests perhaps this accountant is just getting confused by the rules for determining whether a couple is married or not, which is bizarre, but maybe that's where it is. In any case, this is fine. Go to savingforcollege.com, look at Mark's chart, and then if you by any chance file your taxes with a program like TurboTax, input your information, then click married filing jointly, and then click married filing separately, and see what the difference is in the amount of taxes that you pay. And you'll very quickly know if you win or lose by doing all that is necessary. And we know there is a lot necessary to qualify for public service loan forgiveness. And thank you to Mark Kentowitz for being on email when I needed him. He's the best. He is. Thank you, He is. But, you know, this is accounting. And as we have said many, many times before, I am certainly not an accountant. Well, great advice. Thank you so much. Sure. In today's Thrive, every document you need to gather before you evacuate. When the worst is happening around you, you may not have the time or the wherewithal to run down an itemized list of the important things that you'll need to get you through. At hermoney.com, we have a complete list of the documents that you need to pack for an emergency getaway. And note that for many items on the list, copies are fine as long as the originals are in a secure location like a safety deposit box at a bank. Just never leave the originals at home, especially when you know you're in a hurricane or a fire zone. Here's what you need. Certified copy of your birth certificate your driver's license, social security card, passport or ID card, health insurance ID cards, policies and medical records, auto insurance ID cards and policy details, homeowner's insurance policy declaration payments, home deeds, car titles, legal paperwork like wills, support orders, powers of attorney and healthcare directives, marriage or divorce certificates, bank and financial statements, and video, if you have one, or pictures showing the contents of your house. Yep, 
All these items can be replaced, but that can take time and effort that you may just not have after a disaster. The two most important items on the list, your birth certificate and your social security card, since you may need those to help you replace some of the other documents on the list. Last, keep in mind, digital backups of many of these items are just fine. So those pictures showing the contents of your house or the video, if you have it, it can be stored in Google Drive and you can access that from any location. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Bill Perkins for such an interesting conversation and inspiring us to look at what's enough and what we truly value to make our financial lives work just a little bit better. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon. Yeah.